Thank you, Eric and Chandler and Dudes Group and everybody who uh, brings us to this point, this Sabbath. In 1954, a real estate magnate named Arnold Johnson bought the once proud Philadelphia Athletics baseball team. After 20 woeful years on the field and in the box office, and he moved the team to Kansas City. After settling an athletics, setting an athletics attendance record, the team's first year in Kansas City, they never came close to drawing that amount again. And they were on the field. They were cellar dwellers. If you don't know what that means, they were in last place for six years. Johnson died in the spring of 1960. In December of that year, an insurance salesman named Charles O. Finley purchased a controlling interest in the team and a year later bought out all the minority owners. Despite a promise that he made to the city of Kansas City that he would keep the team there, he immediately began shopping the team to other cities. On October 18, 1967, the owners voted to allow him to move the team to Oakland, California for the 1968 season. (laughs) Then Missouri Senator Stuart Symington on the floor of the U.S. Senate proclaimed Oakland as the luckiest city since Hiroshima. On April 18th, uh, 17th, 1968, the A's debuted in their brand new Oakland Alameda County Coliseum home in, a crowd, in front of a crowd reported to be 52,000. Mr. Finley says it was 55,000. It only held 50,000 at the time. <laughs> the next night, 5,000. And I'm sure on that next night, little seven-year-old, Walter Groff was sitting in the upper deck all by himself (laughs) because he would never move down to a better seat that he did not pay for. As divine a game as baseball is, it certainly doesn't operate under the kingdom's rules, not the kingdom of heaven. Owners move teams because they can and they need to make more money. And let's face it, the only reason that after an attendance of second, uh, second night of 5,000 that the A's are still in Oakland is that within five years, they won their first world championship since 1933. And the only reason the team is there is because they continue to win. Winning teams bring people out. People come out, they spend more money. That keeps teams in cities. If you don't believe me, ask the cities of Brooklyn and Philadelphia what it's like to lose their teams. Whereas the kingdom would allow the A's to stay with just 5,000 a night just because little Walter Groff is sitting in the stands. (laughs) The kingdom of the world would never allow such an arrangement. So we pointed out last week that while Jesus never gave an exact description or location or time of the kingdom of heaven. We do know one thing, Pastor Walt pointed out to us. We do know that it isn't where? It isn't here. Okay? It is not here. This is not the kingdom of heaven. It does not resemble the kingdom of heaven. But I want to clarify something. Pastor, when Pastor Walt said that it isn't here, he didn't mean location. He didn't mean geography. It meant citizenship, didn't it? 
citizenship and the laws and the rules which you expect every kingdom to have. Every kingdom has laws and rules that you live by, that you live by within that kingdom. And that's what he meant by the kingdom of heaven is not here. Because the kingdom of the world operates on completely different rules. Who is happy in the kingdom of heaven? The poor, the mourning, the meek, the hungry, the thirsty, the seekers of righteousness, the persecuted ones. Those are the ones that are happy in the kingdom of heaven. J.B. Phillips once wrote the Beatitudes for the, for the kingdom of the world. And he said, blessed are the pushers, for they get on in the world. Blessed are the hard-boiled, for they never let life hurt them. Blessed are they who complain, for they get their way in the end. Blessed are the blasé, for they never worry over their sins. Blessed are the slave drivers, for they get results. Blessed are the knowledgeable men of the world, for they know their way around. Blessed are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. Money, power, the majority rules. By the way, there's nothing wrong with us living by those rules because this is a kingdom that demands it. To live on this planet in order for the strong to survive, that only the strong survive, it has to be the rules. There can't be any other rules. One little problem we have, though, with those rules is that we don't belong to this kingdom. The problem that we have with it is that little Walt wants his A's to stay in Oakland. No matter how many they draw, we are citizens of another kingdom. So forgive me for beginning today in another book besides Matthew, another book that doesn't refer to the kingdom as the kingdom of heaven. He refers to it as the kingdom of God. But this is what Luke said about the kingdom. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming. Now, what did they ask? When is it coming? Pastor Walt and I have talked to you that the Pharisees expected a messianic age. As long as they lived up to the law, Pastor Walt shared that old Talmudic proverb that if everybody were to keep the Sabbath perfectly, Messiah would come. They believed that, that we could get better. They believed that if we kept the law in such a way and everybody did so, that eventually we would bring about the kingdom of heaven where? On earth. And if you think about it, it's, 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 uh, I, don't, I don't want to say logical, but it does make sense. Because what they were trying to do was to prepare the kingdom for the Messiah. They felt that that was their job. That, 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 the, that the kingdom needs to be something that, that is deserved of the Messiah to come. By the way, that's not, a, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad way of looking at it. To prepare the world for the coming of the Messiah. What have we been called to do? To be ready for the coming of the Messiah? To prepare ourselves for the coming of the Messiah? To prepare the church? To prepare? That's, that's what we've been called to do. It's not a bad way of looking at it, but it's a little bit skewed, just a little bit, because of who they believed would belong in the kingdom once it came. So they ask, when? They have no doubt it's coming. That's how much confidence they have in themselves. They have no doubt that it's coming. All they want to know is when. In other words, they're asking him, when will we have our act so together that the Messiah won't have any choice but to come? When? is the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom, and Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not what? It's not coming with things that can be observed. (gasps) Really? Our entire end time message was based on recognizing the signs. Actually, recognizing the signs of the kingdom of the world and as it's imploding. 
But he said that the kingdom of God cannot be observed. There are no signs that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact, the kingdom of God is what? Is among you. Don't go look for a place. The Pharisees argued as to the Messiah had to come to the right place. They believed that the Messiah will come down the Mount of Olives and take his, take his throne in the temple itself. In other words, it has to be a location too. And Jesus is saying, don't look for it in a location. Don't look for it for outward observable signs, for the kingdom of God is what? Is among you. And of course, we studied last week, we know what he meant by that. The kingdom of God is who? It's him. When he said the kingdom of God is among you, he said, here it is. Walking and talking among you. This is the kingdom incarnate. Here it is in bodily form. And then for some reason, he decided not just to give us the kingdom, not just to make us citizens of the kingdom. He decided that the kingdom was going to dwell in each of us. So when we say that the kingdom of heaven is not on earth, we're not talking about location. We're talking about the laws of citizenship. That it is completely opposite from the kingdom of the world. We live by different rules. We are ruled by another king. And while the kingdom may not be here geographically yet, the kingdom exists here nonetheless because you and I are here. And he dwells among us. So that's what he was saying. The Pharisees wanted the kingdom where they wanted it, when they wanted it. The reward that they got for being good was to be able to recognize the signs of the Messiah, the location of the Messiah, all based on their knowledge and their interpretation of the prophetic scriptures. There's nothing wrong with that except that they made it seem like they were the only ones that had it. And no one else could. And they begin to equate that with their citizenship in the kingdom. They felt they belonged because they were smarter than everybody else. They felt they belonged because they were more spiritual than everybody else. And if you didn't believe them, they were happy to show you. Jesus again confounds the application of the kingdom of the world standards to the kingdom of heaven citizenship. Here is the entire problem with living in two kingdoms at one time. See, we live in the intersection of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Jesus was that intersection. Put two circles up, overlap them, there's where we live. There are certain physical things that we're bound by. We live in a kingdom that is hostile to us and hostile to our values. But nonetheless, our citizenship is firm and we belong in the kingdom of heaven thanks to Jesus Christ. But Jesus says, don't mix the application of the standards between the two. Don't think that you can live in the kingdom of heaven by the kingdom of world's rules. But what's cool is that it can happen in the opposite direction. We can live in the kingdom of the world by the kingdom of heaven's rules. That's what we're called to do. Show the world what the kingdom of heaven is like. By although we are here and it is so hard and it is so difficult, he says, live by the kingdom of heaven's rules, even though it's not quite here geographically yet. It's not a particular location, but it's one. It's somebody walking among them. It's not based on observable signs, but on the king bringing the kingdom to earth and offering it to anyone. Even those who don't recognize the signs. 
You know, one thing, one thing is, is that I'm really hard on the Pharisees. I'm really hard on the church of the day of Jesus because they couldn't recognize God when they were walking, when he was walking and talking among them. I'm really hard on it. But what I don't want to admit is that he is saying it's for them too. It's for people who recognize the signs. It's for people who don't recognize the signs. It's for whoever he wants to give the kingdom to. And he's decided that he's going to give it to children and to poor and to the mourning and to the meek, the humble. All the people that get left behind by the rules of the world. There seems to be, and I struggled with the term to place upon this, but I think that what disturbs me most about the kingdom of the world is there seems to be a volume at which it lives. There seems to be a volume at which it flaunts its rules. Are you with me? And I'm not talking about volume here. Sometimes sometimes it is a bit loud. But I'm also talking about the volume here. In other words, they live it out loud, not just in tone, but in visibility too. In the year 2000, Two football players in the NFL were in car accidents. Player one, right here. The police see this car, and they've never seen a car so smashed up. They believe that they are going to be digging bodies out of this car. And a Pro Bowl wide receiver crawls out of it, not even needing a Band-Aid, nor does his girlfriend. Player two... Another Pro Bowl linebacker for another NFL team. His car is barely dented. It's an SUV, and it flipped the same way the first car did. But this Pro Bowl linebacker is paralyzed from the waist down, and his best friend is dead. Two men, two men, both facing or observing or seeing Super Bowl Sunday from two completely perspectives. Player A plays in Super Bowl in 2000, the Rams versus the Titans. He caught a winning touchdown pass. Here's the way he describes it. He says, with, with each, uh, each uh, a man w- uh, observing Super Bowl Sunday, both with the crowd ringing in their ears, each in a room with colorful banners on the walls and tension in the air, each needing a personal triumph in the worst kind of way, the first man sprints down the sideline in Atlanta's Georgia Dome, turns for a spiral, catches it in front of one defensive back, ducks under another, and flashes into the end zone to give the Rams the winning touchdown and the most thrilling Super Bowl finish ever. That was back in 2000. He's covered in hugs and then says this, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. That was all God. I knew I had to make an adjustment on the ball and God did the rest. Now, first of all, was it all God? Nope. He at least had to make an adjustment on the ball. They needed to know that. We needed to know that. We needed to know that that touchdown pass was all God. This man lays in a room knowing he's never going to walk again. And the triumph he's looking for on this Super Bowl Sunday is actually to find the strength to get out of bed and to get in the wheelchair that he will be bound in the rest of his life the first time. And they said he raised his head up, tried it, and just put his head back down. And his surgeon said, you know what, with the game on and everything today, it's tough. We'll do this tomorrow. Two men, two flips of fate. 
Rick Riley, who wrote this story for Sports Illustrated as a columnist, asked player A to, to, to wonder, did you ever look at player B and say, that could be me? Player A says, oh no, not at all. He says, really, why? He said, because as my car was flipping, I threw my hands off the wheel and I called Jesus' name. Riley asked, does that mean that God doesn't love player B? Oh, no. But I don't know what he said as his car was flipping. (laughs) Rick Riley, knowing a bit about Payne Stewart, said, what about Payne Stewart? He's a Christian man. Does that mean that God didn't love Payne Stewart? Payne Stewart, by the way, died in a plane crash. Actually, it wasn't a plane crash. It was a plane that lost its pressure and he died of hypoxia and the plane crashed when it ran out of fuel. Does that mean God doesn't love Payne Stewart? He was a Christian man. I have no idea what Payne Stewart said in that plane that day. Well, are you saying if Payne Stewart had invoked the name of Jesus Christ, he'd be alive today? Oh, definitely. And then Riley asked the one question that hits home to him because Columbine is his hometown. He said, what about the Columbine High student who was asked by one of the killers if she believed in God? She said yes, and he blew her away. How can that be? You don't know what she said, do you? There were witnesses. Yeah, but you weren't there, were you? And Riley concludes the column saying, two men, pray for them both. There's a volume that the, that the world lives by. There's a volume and a visibility that the rules of the world lives by. And to me, it gets very distasteful when Christians try to live in the kingdom of heaven by the kingdom of the world's rules. What did Jesus say about the volume in which we live? He says, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who invokes my name. Not everyone who does it out loud. Not everyone who does it because they think that people have to hear it. But only the one who does what? who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many deeds of power in your name? And he says, and I will declare to them, I never what? I never knew you. And he says, depart from me, evildoers. Evildoers? Hold, Hold on here. Prophecy? Casting out demons, miraculous signs of power, and by the way, all giving who the credit? All giving Jesus the credit. All doing it in Jesus' name. What am I missing? What's the problem? And it hit me. Maybe the problem is the volume in which they did it. They did it out loud and in front of everyone. And notice the, the, the deeds that you will, that they choose to do of the will of the Father in heaven. It's the ones that are out loud. It's the ones that are up front. It's the ones that, that we could take credit for, even though we do it in Jesus' name. What's missing is the quiet, the invisibility, the cloak that protects us against the temptation to boast. The closets, the inner rooms, this is what's missing. There were two men that went up to a temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. When the Pharisee prays, he prays at the volume of the kingdom of the world, doesn't he? Out loud, up front. In fact, boasting to God who he is. 
I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. I'm not a thief. I'm not a rogue. I'm not an adulterer. I tithe. I do everything right. I thank you, oh God. He does it in the name of God. He believes in righteousness by faith, by the way. But he does it at a volume that the kingdom of the world rewards. The tax collector, knowing his sin, weighed down by the burden of his sin, can't even lift his face up to the sky. And he beats his chest saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. There's a volume to that prayer, isn't there? Lord, have mercy on me, a what? A sinner. Jesus says, truly I tell you, this man went to his house justified. He was able to hold out an empty hand. He was able to resist the temptation of living this volume, this kingdom of the world volume, and putting it up front and wearing it on his sleeve and reminding people how righteous he is. Because the tax collector realized that he wasn't righteous at all. And he needed to hold up an empty hand. That's what we talked about last week. When you look through the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13, what I'm struck by is the silence and the invisibility. Yeast in dough. Pearls hidden in a field. Mustard seed. A mustard seed is no bigger than a grain of sand. It's, it's, it's a piece of dust of seed. It almost doesn't exist, if you think about it. Yet you throw that in a field, and it grows. But there's, a, there's a, an invisibility, a silence, a, a background quietly behind the scenes, an underground quality to the kingdom of heaven. They can't be observed, Jesus said. It can't be seen. The citizens of the kingdom of heaven live at a particular volume and it's much quieter, much more behind the scenes than it is that the kingdom of the world demands. In order to have the money and the power that the kingdom of the world demands to survive, it needs to be out loud. It needs to be up front. It needs to be self-promoting. And even the works themselves... That the people that said, Lord, Lord, even those works, they're loud and they're up front. By the way, he's telling us there is no indication that those people belong in the kingdom of heaven either. Even though they're doing these powerful deeds all in Jesus' name. He tells another parable in, in, in Matthew 13. He says, he put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the household came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, what? An enemy has done this. The slaves said to them, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, no, for in gathering the weeds, you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Who's the only one that knows the difference between the weed and the wheat? The harvester. Because he later, when he explains the parable, (laughs) disciples didn't get it, by the way. None of them were farmers. There were a few fishermen and an accountant. None of them were farmers. I think it's funny. He has to explain the agricultural parables to the disciples every time. 
Because out of all, the, all of the parables that he has in, in Matthew 13, the one that he has to explain to them is the sower of the seed, which begins the chapter, and then this one. Tell us about this, this thing, these weeds and, and wheat and, and stuff like that. We don't know what's going on. But when he explains it, he says that the angels are the reapers. And the only way that they can tell is that the harvester knows which are which. Who doesn't know, by the way? Who doesn't know which are which? The wheat and the weeds themselves. What got me, what got me about this parable, he goes, let them grow together. See, we immediately, we immediately, I, you know, I, there's something about it that we immediately jump to the, to the next line because we want to be privileged because we don't want to be uprooted, right? But notice, we're the ones who want to uproot the weeds. We want it to look good. We want it to look uniform. Weeds don't belong in the wheat field. Let us uproot them. And here the harvester cares as much for the weeds as he does for the wheat. And by the way, the only shot that the weeds have at becoming wheat is to grow together with the wheat. And by the way, if they are so entangled that when you pull the weed out, you pull the weed up with it, what does that say about how entangled we're supposed to be with the, weed, with the weeds in our field? And who's to say we're not weeds ourselves? I'm not so sure that this parable is about the church in the world. I think this parable is about two kinds of churches. It's about two kinds of people. It's about a church that wants to live truly by the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. And it's a church that wants to live by the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven part-time. They want to live by the rules of the world another time and live by... That's why they look alike. That's why they're in the same field. Let them grow together. But it's so messy. It's so messy. And I don't like how much I resemble that weed over there. Well, maybe the weed isn't so thrilled about looking like you either. Wow. Grow together. The kingdom... That's why it's not a geographical location. That's why right now it happens to, to be uh, physically located on this planet that lives by another set of rules. But the whole purpose for putting us here is so that the kingdom of the world can see another set of rules and hopefully make it a decision one day that they want to be citizens of the kingdom too. What kind of advertising are we doing for the kingdom of heaven? How are we doing are we showing the world what the kingdom of heaven looks like? Are we playing by a different set of rules? This week in the, uh, in the One Project's weekly uh, update, uh, a chaplain at Walla Walla, I forgot his last name. His first name is Patty, though. Can't forget that. His first name is Patty. You know. In his article for the One Project this week, he said, In Dave Kinneman and Gabe Lyons' book published in 2007, Unchristian, 91% of those identified as non-Christians between the ages of 16 to 29 said that the first identifier of Christians in today's culture is that they are anti-gay. The number one indicator of Christians in the culture today, according to people 16 to 29. By the way, who are the most targeted audience that the Christian church is going after today? Those guys, okay, 16 to 29, they say that the first identifier of Christians in our culture is that they are anti-gay. Patty added, in fact, you have to get through a list of five things before anything positive is said about the Christians. 
anti-gay, hypocritical, judgmental, irrelevant, and too political. This week at a conference in Boston, Massachusetts, a researcher by the name of D. Alsop, CEO of Heart and Mind Ministries, referenced some yet-to-be-released research that shows a majority of Americans feel that Christians are the problem, not the solution to most of the issues we face in North America. In addition, 49% feel that the world would continue receiving aid and having strong social justice proponents, even if Christians weren't part of the equation. And the number is on the rise, even though other statistics show that most of the good work being done in the world is at the hand of faith-based organizations. We were asked by a professor at seminary once, ask yourself honestly, honestly, if your church were to close today, would your community miss you? And he said, if the answer is no, go ahead and close. He says, does anyone see a problem here? Or do we want to bury our heads in the sand and hope that the perceptions change by themselves? Former presidential speechwriter Michael Gershon said that if evangelical Christians are going to be known for their ethical agenda over and above the story of the gospel, then they are finished. I believe this applies to all Christians, not just those identifying as, those identifying as evangelical. But why is it we seem to care more about more that people know what we believe on any particular issue as opposed to caring that other people know we care for them. Why is it that we have to live at that volume? Why do people have to know? Why do people have to? Why do I feel that I've got to tell you that I'm a Christian? My question today for myself and for the church is, what are we afraid of? Because to me, it's fear. It's fear. We're afraid that maybe somebody would be lost. We're afraid maybe that we'll be lost if we don't tell people. But the kingdom lives by a different volume. It lives undercover. It lives behind the scenes. It lives with humility. And yet I insist on living out loud in your face. Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, said a political movement by nature draws lines, makes distinctions, pronounces judgment. In contrast, Jesus' love cuts across lines, transcends distinctions, dispenses grace. Regardless of the merits of a given issue, whether a pro-life lobby right out of the right or a peace and justice lobby out of the left, political movements risk pulling onto themselves the mantle of power that smothers love. From Jesus, I learned that whatever activism I get involved in, it must not drive out love and humility or otherwise I betray the kingdom of heaven. You know, there isn't, there isn't a church that's come along in the 2,000 year history of the church that did not feel, that did not feel that their message was special enough that it had to be lived out loud. And when I say out loud, I'm talking about the world's volume. And when actually we have a world that's telling us what they think is wrong with this, and all they're asking us to do is, would you please live by the kingdom of heaven's rules? Would you put it back in the closet? Take it back in the prayer closet? Put it back in your inner room? Let the yeast do what it's going to do silently behind the scenes? The world is telling me, Greg, I'm tired of you talking about being a Christian Shut up 
and do it. Two kings, Herod and Jesus, personified different kinds of power. Herod had legions of Roman soldiers to enforce his will, and history records how Herod used his power. He stole the brother's wife, locked up all dissenters, beheaded John the Baptist as a party trick. When Pastor Walt and I were walking in the Holy Land our last trip, we were surprised, we, we, were, I, we were just bemused at the amount of bathhouses Herod had. He built the bath everywhere he went. And we both came to the conclusion he it was a bloodthirsty, crazy, tyrannical tyrant, but he was clean. <laughs> Jesus too had power, but he used it compassionately. He fed the hungry, he healed the sick. Herod had a gold crown, palaces, guards, and all the visible tokens of royalty. For Jesus, the closest to a formal coronation or Messiah's anointing occurred in an embarrassing scene when a prostitute poured perfume on his head. He got the title King of the Jews as a criminal sentence. His crown made of thorns was one merely, one more merely, uh, merely one more source of pain. And though he could have called in a legion of angels for protection, in other words, he could have lived by the rules of the world whenever he wanted to, he refused. And in fact, he not only refused to do it physically, he refused even to say a word like a lamb that is silent before its shears. When Jesus lived on earth, he made the blind to see and the lame to walk. He will return to, or to, to rule over a kingdom that has no disease or disability. On earth he died and was resurrected. At his return, death will be no more. On earth he cast out demons. At his return, he will destroy the evil one. On earth he came as a baby born in a manger. He'll return as the blazing figure described in the book of Revelation. King of kings and Lord of lords. The kingdom he set in motion on earth, though, was not the end, only the beginning of the end. By the way, when he comes and the world then would actually recognize him as king because he is glorified and has all the power, by then it's too late. C.S. Lewis says, you know, when the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. Anyone is welcome into the kingdom. Once we enter the kingdom, we play by a different set of rules. It's open to anybody. The man that hung on the cross beside him, his life had absolutely no worthiness, had absolutely no volume except at full volume everything spoke. At full volume, him hanging on that cross, it spoke. The law condemned him to an eternity of condemnation from God. The letter of the law said, Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. At that moment, by the, by the rules of the kingdom of the world, this man was condemned to eternity of nobody ever remembering who he is again because if God condemns him then nobody else can bring him to mind his rabbi was erasing the name his name out of the rolls of the synagogue his parents were rehearsing at that very moment to never ever mention his name again he will be remembered no more his life was now at a volume that said condemned 
The kingdom of the world condemned him. The letter of the law condemned him. He had no hope except to look at the king that day and say, Please, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And I know that I'm paraphrasing him because I don't want to get into an argument about it. But Jesus said, the kingdom today is yours. The world doesn't live by those rules. Unfortunately, sometimes the church doesn't live by those rules either. Sometimes the church is glad to allow the letter to condemn the person. Is perfectly glad to allow the law to condemn the person and to tell them that they don't belong. This king says, it's mine to do with what I want. I'm going to give it to him. I'm going to give it to him. And forget the rules of the world. This is a different kingdom you and I belong to. And I just... Pastor Walt and I don't want you to go another minute to think that there's anything of you that, de- that you deserve to be in the kingdom except for the fact that the king gave it to you. And if you felt that you've been kept out of the kingdom up until today, I don't want you to go another moment without knowing, without knowing for sure that if you believe in the king and that he gave it to you, your citizenship is assured. It's yours. Grasp it. Live in it. And tell the world to turn it down. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, Lord, for giving us the kingdom today. And I, I praise you that, that I can live in this kingdom with this beautiful family. Lord, we know that we, we have rules to live by. We know that we have a job to do, and that is to tell people what the rules of this kingdom are and to throw open the gates and welcome them here. I just ask that you allow us to do that, that all of our ministries at church be able to do that, that we be able to do that at home and at work and in our neighborhoods and at the store and to the waitress who brings us our food. Help us, Lord. Remember us. Remember us when you come into your kingdom. Lord, we give Jesus praise because he is certainly the only one that deserves it. We pray in his name. Amen.